0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Intrigue Explained, the weekly podcast where two former diplomats try to explain the world of international relations, pick up on some of the stories you may have missed, dive into some details, and generally geek out, but hopefully in a way that doesn't entirely bore you. Uh, Here to not entirely bore you is my co-host, John Fowler. John, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Dimitri. With that, uh, with that wrap, I don't know how I can fail to exceed expectations. Hopefully, not bore you entirely.
0: It's a it's a low bar to clear, but one I've never quite managed to clamber over. Uh, John, John comes to us uh, this week. Where in the world are you?
1: Uh, well, I'm in Toronto. I'm not supposed to be here, but um, the vagaries of North American air travel in winter mean that I. Had three flights cancelled yesterday, so I've got an unexpected stopover in Toronto. Um, So, you know, forgive my sound quality and my internet quality. I'm recording in the corner of my hotel room here.
0: It's always exciting connecting with you somewhere in the world, because it makes me feel like I'm throwing live to a roaming international correspondent. Of course, you're always like in Chicago or Toronto. We're never like doing a live cross to Mogadishu, but still it's a it's a gaze out into the world as i sit here in geneva
1: well that that's good to hear because otherwise it's very frustrating for me and i think if i was in mogadishu i might have a better internet connection but anyway
0: yeah the the one thing you discover when you start travelling to the developing world is that a suspicious amount of it seems to be wired better for 4g than your own backyard <laughs> so john comes to us from international intrigue and as always we strongly advise and recommend that you subscribe to their free daily newsletter, which summarizes international news from the day in just, uh, normally it's like under a seven minute read, right guys?
1: Yeah, that, that's the idea. It's kind of like five minutes in the morning over, over your coffee and you'll have a sense of what's going on in the world and, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of more context than you might get from the main news and ideally more entertaining as well.
0: More entertaining than the morning news. That—that That is, again, a bar we must clamber over.
1: It's all about setting expectations, Dimitri. I feel like the biggest the biggest disappointments come from high expectations and low quality. And we're just like aiming to reduce the expectations and raise the quality.
0: <laughs> so you, you've got the same approach as my love life. I, I hear you. Um, <laughs> so uh, on... I mean, todays we're recording on the 24th of February, which is, of course, a a pretty uh, heavy day for for me and for for a lot of people. Um, This is the the one year anniversary of the re-invasion of Ukraine, the intensification of the invasion of Ukraine, however you want to define that moment. Uh, There's been a lot of great stuff written uh, about the day and about the year. Uh, international intrigue uh, just did a really good and thoughtful rat- wrap up that I recommend people read but actually a, a tweet of yours uh, tickled my my righteous outrage bone John when you were talking you looked back at some of the predictions from just before the invasion do you want to t- tell, us- tell us what you saw
1: yeah, I mean, it won't be any surprise to anybody on Twitter that it's full of various clowns with their hot takes and whatnot. But um, one of the things we were talking about before we just came on air was the ability for—I mean, the way to tell serious geopolitical analysts or people who think thoughtfully about this stuff from the shills, the hacks, the outrage merchants, the or all the people who are just you know one hundred percent on the Kremlin payroll—is um, the way that they approached being wrong about the invasion like i i think it's important to note that like being wrong about whether russia was going to invade ukraine last year doesn't mean that you're a hack because you know lots and lots of really smart people just it didn't make sense to a lot of people right the difference is yeah i i didn't either and i mean i wasn't certainly wasn't you know closely in the weeds of it but it just because it just didn't make any kind of strategic sense at least from my perspective but there were these folks on twitter that i kind of have started retweeting which who were like you know like basically blaming NATO for expansionism and like likening it to the, the the Iraq war and saying like, you know, it's never going to happen. Putin's not an idiot within an hour of, you know, that attack on the airport North of, um, Kiev and like, you know, the announcement (laughs) of the special, special military operation, um, they were pivoting to like, well, actually Ukraine's full of Nazis and, you know, it's actually a good thing that we denazify Ukraine. And the the takes of just like retweeting, and it, it is schadenfreude, it's it's a guilty pleasure, I, one I don't do very often, <laughs> but retweeting folks being absolutely certain that Putin's a military genius and that the military, the Russian military will wipe the floor with Ukraine within six hours, then pivoting to a year down the line where Putin looks like a, a bumbling old man and the Russian military has been shown to be deeply incompetent and corrupt is yeah it's it's a little bit of schadenfreude and i i allowed it on on I allowed myself that schadenfreude on the anniversary because it it feels good
0: <laughs> it, it does feel good i have to say it, it's a little bit of my guilty pleasure as well not because as you say like it's entirely it was entirely i mean i say this biasly because this was my position but it's entirely reasonable to look at um what was going on and conclude like he's not going to invade because how would he hold it if he took it was the kind of thought that I was going on. Like he doesn't have... You can't hold a country of 44 million people with like 90,000 combat troops that don't have enough trucks. But it was kind of this ironclad certainty that he's not going to invade and that people are fools for believing US intelligence that was saying yeah. he was, which immediately pivoted to... Uh, he is definitely, okay, he's invaded, but they deserved it. Um, is, yeah, it's... They're all Russians It's just nice. Yes, exactly. It's, they speak Russian in Donbass, ergo this is fine. Um, it is good to be reminded of who the hacks are, uh, because they continue to do it. And, uh, I have this concept and this word that no one else uses, because I'm pretty sure I made it up, called griftflation. Where you have to constantly be coming out with a more potent take um, in order to, if you want attention and like if you want to break through, which is why you did go from like, oh, he's not going to do it to he's justified by security concerns to Ukraine's a puppet of the US to like the Ukrainians are Nazis and Russia is right all within the space of like a year as people just felt competed for eyeballs basically
1: yeah well that's absolutely right and I think I think the thing here is that if you again it's a way to tell serious people from non-serious people anybody worth their salt who watches international politics and geopolitics will tell you I don't know is a perfectly legitimate answer or here are a range of outcomes and I would say this one's more likely than this one Uh, But no one knows. Even the people who predicted the war in Ukraine didn't know how it would unfold, right? Like, there were a lot of really smart analysts who said, listen, there's blood bags on the border. This militarization is different from previous militarizations. I think they're going to invade. But, you know, the idea that they would have, like, tried to take the the airport in in Ukraine and then rolled down and then been pushed back and then all that, no one can predict any of that. So the people who say this is 100% going to happen like the people who follow them require them to be certain of everything they say. So when you're wrong, you have to be more certain about the next thing, more certain about yeah. the next thing. Hence your, I think it's a great phrase, griftflation. Uh, anyone who's like doing this possible, like, you know, legitimately will say, well, I was got that wrong. I'm going to go t- take a week to think about why I was wrong. And here's why I was wrong rather than I was right all along. You idiots just didn't understand how right it was.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or, or the like, you'll, you'll know in 50 years that I was right. Well, it's- that's a convenient time frame. Uh, anyway, thank you for letting... Thank you, dear listeners, dear viewers, for letting us get that off uh, get that off our collective chests. Um, tonight's show is going to be a bit different from the last couple we've done uh, because basically John and I just want to have a fight. Uh, John and I disagree about whether the Cold War is a good analogy for basically the 21st century for the the tensions that are coming between the West and China. Um, And we disagree about whether that, it is a good analogy and what policymakers perhaps can learn from the Cold War. Uh, And basically we just wanna record ourselves having a fight. Um, Again, in the spirit of managing expectations, the way Intrigue does and the way uh, I do romantically, let me say that John is a formerly trained Australian barrister uh, and my high school debate team was not very good, uh, so this may be like the biggest drubbing since Russia tried to take Ostabell Airport. But you know, just 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 remember as you are listening that John is a unbeatable professional uh, who has never lost an argument, and I am a small child blundering into an arena unprepared and frankly intellectually unmatched.
1: This is deeply, deeply, deeply unfair and untrue.
0: (laughs) I'm going to edit you saying that out. Uh, (laughs) Just get rid of the un.
1: This is deeply, deeply true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to find a clip of you agreeing with me from a previous podcast and edit that in, but that's, this is better. This will save me time. (laughs) Dimitri is correct. -er. Um... (laughs) But before we, before we get to that, we did have two stories we wanted, uh, we wanted to cover really briefly because we always try to look at some of the things that have been in international, uh, in, in international intrigue this week um, and pick out some of the things that we think uh, we want to elevate on your radar. Um, one of those is the fact that the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is charged with monitoring uh, Iran's enrichment program, uh, has claims that it has detected heavily enriched uranium in Iran, and we'll get into that in a sec. But first we wanted to have a look at a recent, uh, a recent video by China's top diplomat, uh, to, uh, to Russia. Uh, and some of the things that were said and what that might imply for, uh, for the relationship and uh, for the future of the world, really. So, John, did you want to set us up here a little bit?
1: Yeah, so obviously this comes against the backdrop of the Ukraine war, as everything does. So one of the big issues over the last year has been China's, if not support, at least failure to rebuke Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. So um, this week, China's top diplomat, as you said, Wang Yi, who is, you know, pretty senior in the Chinese system, um, was in Moscow to meet with Sergei Lavrov and he he met with Putin, which I wouldn't say is unusual, but, you know, there's a, it was a notable kind of mismatch between a foreign minister and a president. They don't often match up, but in this case, obviously, with the importance of the, of the meeting, they, they did. Um, I think the takeaway here is Putin was very, very warm towards China and kind of tried to push on to China that, President Xi will visit Moscow, Um, you know, saying all the things they always say about the Chinese-Russian friendship and the partnership uh, against the U.S. and the West and all this kind of stuff. Um, the The Chinese response was, I think, most China watchers would say, a little less enthusiastic in a very subtle way that you know China often is. Um, They they sort of said, "Yes, we agree. Our friendship is very important, and the U.S. is or the West is the problem." They didn't Wang Yi didn't use the the phrase uh a, a no-limits partnership or a no limits friendship, which was the source of a lot of embarrassment for China last year because they said no limits friendship right before Russia invaded Ukraine, to which they seemingly didn't know, so it seemed like they did have limits to their friendship. Um so they, they, you know that's notable that China didn't use that language, and they also seemed to hedge on whether she will visit Moscow. You know, Putin was really pushing for this Xi Jinping trip to Moscow, um, almost trying to present it as a fait accompli. Whereas I think the Chinese side would kind of go, "Well, maybe, but we need to see some different things before that." Um, and then I guess the overall context, which you might elaborate on, uh, elaborate on a little bit, is just I think what China is trying to do is present itself as a constructive. Um, negotiator in, in this process, the idea that it has credibility in Moscow um, and Moscow would be likely to follow what China says or presents to it, um, while also keeping the Europeans on side by not fully supporting Moscow and saying, hey, if we're going to negotiate a peace in Ukraine, there's really no one else who can do it. So look to China. And that would obviously boost China's international prestige. So that's kind of the story around his trip to Moscow um, last week.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, there's a couple of like additional little points of background that this comes on the background. Uh, US intelligence has been effectively leaking uh, that it has evidence that the Chinese have been seriously discussing internally providing lethal aid to Russia. So providing armaments to Russia. Now, we have no confirmation of that. The US hasn't actually shared its evidence. Uh, but this was kind of the context of this visit. And the U.S. came out and said that for them, that would be a red line. Uh, though it wasn't clear, it was kind of a red line and then what. Um, but Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, made it very clear that this would be a, a really serious breach of the peace. So that's, that's one element of this. Uh, and since then, the Chinese have not quite a, at Yi's level, I think, but have basically indicated that they're not going to do that. Secondly, the Chinese have said that they are going to table a paper proposing a path forward to peace on U- uh, in Ukraine. Uh, no one quite knows what that's going to be. There are things floating around Twitter that include like departitioning partitioning Kiev It is one map I've seen that creates a demilitarized zone that runs from kind of Rostov all the way to central Kiev and then down the river to Kherson. Um, no one knows what the veracity of that is, but I think that all comes into context of exactly as you said, John. China is pl- China is trying to give Europe an excuse to treat it as a constructive partner it can continue to do business with in the face of U.S. pressure. The U.S. is trying to maneuver Europe to treat China as an adversary and as a someone you should not be doing huge amounts of business with. And the Chinese, I think, are trying to push back on that in different ways by saying, no, no, we are a global constructive player. You don't have to take drastic steps. Do you think that's a do you think that's a fair representation of their mindset?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, we don't have time really to get into the, the history of Chinese diplomacy, but I think there's a general sense in Beijing that they've overstepped in the last couple of years with the kind of belligerent foreign policy, or at least belligerent kind of diplomacy that they've been employing around the world. Uh, And I think that they are a little bit alarmed that the relationships in Europe, particularly with, you know, some of the more Eastern European countries, um, have degraded so quickly over the last year. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of that is Ukraine and, and Russia, obviously, but I think they're also reaping some of the fruits of the last couple of years of their more belligerent, less accommodating diplomacy Uh, and i think they i think i think now that xi jinping has kind of solidified his power i think they're trying to address that and they see ukraine potentially as an opportunity to show that but you know to your point i think when when any peace plan is presented that doesn't look like russia get out of ukraine um immediately i think it's probably not going to fly with ukraine well certainly not going to fly with ukraine and probably not going to get much traction in europe So it's actually not clear to me that if they wade into this negotiating role, that there's anything to be had there, at least anytime soon. And it could end up hurting them more by presenting things to Ukraine that look farcical and, you know, hurting their reputation more. But, you know, that's speculation, obviously.
0: Uh, It comes also against the backdrop, backdrop of the UN General Assembly vote. Uh, which was basically tabled as Russia should get its troops out of Ukraine, which went something like 141 to 7 with 32 abstentions. So it would be difficult to position any kind of peace plan where Russia gets to keep large swathes of Ukrainian territory right. as a- anything, anything kind of in line with global opinion. But... It is often useful in international relations, as you know, to be able to point to something you've done and be able to say, "Well, we have a proposal. We're not just saying no. We're not. We're in the mix. We've got a plan. And if people would just engage with it seriously, we could move forward. You know, we yeah. we could solve this whole thing. Sadly, they haven't. We're all very disappointed. But so so there's a positioning yeah. element to it as well, I think.
1: And I get and I guess very quickly, the last note there would be as we you know we're going to talk about what the world's going to look like in, in our main section, sort of a multipolar world or a, or a bipolar world. But if you if you expand China's sort of goals here to being like, well, imagine they're not trying to convince Europe or, or Russia or anyone else. They're trying to convince Africa and Latin America. It's quite a compelling narrative if you don't dig beneath the surface to say, hey, look, the U.S. is supplying guns to a war zone. We're trying to solve a problem. Now, obviously you dig one inch below the surface and that's ludicrous, but as a, as a top line narrative, which I'm sure they will start to push to countries who, you know, are, yeah, again, who aren't in any of, you know, certainly not the US orbit, that might be a, that might be a compelling place to start a, a relationship with China. So, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of different angles.
0: Yeah. I think that makes sense our our second story which we can do fairly quickly um is that the international atomic Air energy agency has detected what 84% enriched uranium in iran um now when we say detect what that means is trace trace particles it's not they haven't found a giant stack of glowing green bars uh with like a what of with the Allah, with the atom symbol it. painted on them Yes, exactly. It's not it's not like a leaky green barrel they found, um, but uh, the context is ninety percent is the level of enrichment you need for a nuclear weapon, and sixty percent is the level of enrichment Iran says it has centrifuges for. Um, yeah,
1: so so right at the top of this story, let me let me just kind of say that we we, i mean one of the reasons that doing this work is so rewarding is that we have readers of far greater expertise than you or i and uh we got an email from from one of our readers this week who read our story and said hey i work for the the iaea um and just to like clarify the director hasn't yet announced that they've confirmed Mm -hmm found this um, enriched uranium. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important at the top of the story to say, like there, there are reports of this and, you know, there's I think there's a very strong sense that it's true, but in terms of like actual confirmation from the energy organization that is the, the, the you know, the final word on this stuff in the world, they haven't confirmed it yet. So with that said, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you outlined the story that, you know, obviously uh, they've found traces of, of uranium way above, what was previously known. I think there was always speculation that Iran was doing this behind the scenes, but there was no confirmation of it. Um, I think, you know, I, I think the other thing too is that there's a possibility that they might have enriched this by accident, because you can, you know, this stuff can accumulate and concentrate apparently mm-hmm. in the centrifuge network. So there's an outside chance that it wasn't intentional. But you know, I don't think anybody watching this at our level, like without the deep scientific knowledge of it it it, do, it makes sense put it that way that Iran has been doing this in the background and is, and is getting towards the bomb. Um, I you know the breakout time, which is the the, the the phrase used to describe how long is required between now and developing a nuclear weapon, is down to like a, you know weeks. So the, 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 I guess the, the, the overall line here is that there's a sense that Iran is closer than it has ever been to developing a nuclear weapon. Um, so what do you do about that? Uh, you know, I, I think there's no evidence that they're trying to build a nuclear weapon yet, but this is the context. Um, so the, la- I guess the last bit of information there too, is that, um, the U S special representative to Iran, uh, Robert Robert he said that the military option is on the table to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. So if there was some intelligence to dis- to say that, you know, this in- uranium was for the purpose of nuclear weapons, we're in a a whole different ball game um and then layer on top of that the fact that there's a very right-wing government in Israel that will be watching this with considerable interest is you know it's not it's not good news
0: yeah i mean this comes a week i think after what were almost certainly israeli strikes on mm. uh iranian drone factories and, and a number of sites in iran um israel uh, allegedly israel but like it was israel um Uh, I don't think anyone thinks that those were Lebanese uh, aerial (laughs) assaults on Iran. Um, It's not Qatar acting up. Um, Israel has shown that it is willing to effectively launch attacks on Iran, that it's capable of doing so, and that it will do so in the pursuit of its national security. Um, And so the region has the potential to get a lot messier. Um, Mm. I will say the last final, final point Uh, The level of my understanding is that the level of enrichment you need for electricity generation is about 5%. Yeah. Um, So, so the level, so having 60% enrichment was already a very close step, was already a sort of move halfway to the bomb. So this doesn't necessarily change that much. The key determinant was, has Iran made the political decision that it will risk trying to build a bomb? And the potentially very violent consequences of people trying to stop them doing that, um, and it's not clear that that has happened. But this is a worrying sign.
1: Yeah, I, I think if you think if you zoom out again a bit, the, the sweet spot for the Iranian leadership has always been the credible threat of developing nuclear weapons in the not too distant future that's what gets the u.s to the table to negotiate with sanctions that's what gets the israel like the u.s able to control the israelis and say hey listen better they're at the table with us than you know just an all-out war in your backyard um you know I, i personally and again i'm sure other analysts will disagree but Iran doesn't stand to gain a lot from having actually having the bomb I mean like North Korea arguably has bombs and look at it it's an, it's a pariah state it's desperately yeah. poor and you know all of this kind of stuff and 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 it becomes a client state of China so Iran may well be becoming a client state of you know China and 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 Russia to a lesser extent so I don't think that there's a lot of like geopolitical sense in actually obtaining the bomb it's this space between, as you said, 5% electricity generation and 90% for military weapons. This space between there and like a scale on how serious they are and how good things are with the West, you know, 10% enrichment if, if if the US and Iran are sort of getting along okay, up to 80 if things are really bad. It's almost like a little like a little scale for the nature of the relationship. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's not good news either way, but we'll see.
0: Yep. Something to watch. And mm. that brings us cheerfully to our nerd fight
1: which we have to start off we have to start off with like convincing people that this is interesting because i noticed on twitter responses to your tweet were like nah i find it hard to care about this
0: <laughs> yeah no listen fair enough there's a reason we called it a nerd fight and not like the super bowl uh, i i do think that the way that we the way that we conceptualize what's coming and what to expect is really important and for better or worse you know we've had this frustration we're talking about this before we started that you know there's like a read one other book thing where like everybody compares everything to harry potter and you're just like could you just read one other book and so i think in history similarly you're often like could you just learn about a historical event that wasn't world war ii And I think similarly with with the Cold War, it's like it it was the defining moment, it was the defining epoch for a lot of the people that are in power right now. That is the they grew up with duck and cover. I mean Biden, I realize, was in the Napoleonic Wars, but other (laughs) leaders who who are uh, are under under three hundred. sort of for them that was the defining era and the way that they may look at the world will be defined by how relevant they think that example is and what they can learn from it
1: that's right i think all what we're talking about here is is kind of like mental shortcuts to understand that the world is changing right like i think that's what we're trying to get you know when the media says oh cold war 2.0 they are trying to get across the idea that things are changing and we need to like prepare for a world in which people don't get furiously get along you know on a grand scale um so yeah i think i think you're right i I think before we start sort of going back and forth on this i think it's important just to kind of define in a very like you know grade school debating way the oxford dictionary defines multipolarity as no but the, the idea being just like what we're talking about here is 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 important so if if the Cold War is an analogy, it's a bipolar world, right? It's the Soviet Union versus the U.S. and every other country, uh, kind of gravitates to Moscow or Washington. So if you're in Europe or you're in the U.K., you take a lot of your comfort and your security and your trade and your you know person-to-person links are from Washington and and vice versa. And if you're in the Soviet sphere of influence, you know, nor- you know China, uh, most of Central Asia, Eastern Europe, you're taking your You know, all your security needs and all that kind of stuff from Moscow and the world, you know, with some exceptions, obviously, but like the world pretty much divided itself from 1950 to 1991 down those two lines. Um, So that's a bipolar world. That's the Cold War. And that's what I think a lot of people are using the analogy to describe what we're moving into um obviously post cold war you have this period of what is called uni- unipolarity which again fancy word for just america was unchallenged um tr- that's you know it, it the rules-based order the idea that there's an international law the wto all these kinds of things um and that people like lar- other countries largely had to do what america or the international community said the last 30 years of you know great power peace is is this era that is coming to an end now and people are trying to figure out what's to come next. And obviously no one from, who who has been alive who's alive now has actually lived through what I think we're moving into, which is a multipolar world, which was probably like the last time that happened was probably like the 1890s right before World War I. This idea that there's no one power, there's no two powers, there are regional powers, centers of gravity and countries around them you know, not necessarily geographically, but countries in the world will align themselves with various poles, various points of power. But there are bunches of different competing powers, and obviously that last ended in World War One with you know the, the various kickoffs after after Franz Ferdinand was shot in uh, in Serbia. So it's this idea that it's it's a lot messier, it's a lot harder to understand. Um, but the Cold War analogy is much easier to understand, so people just immediately snap to it that's kind of like just to set the table
0: Uh, okay but let me let me flip that table flip that table somewhat um because I think part of me worries that when we talk about the cold war that way we are looking back at it through the lens of kind of almost like like high school students reading a history book which trims out so much of the complexity like there is a reason that the world was described as, you know, we have these terms first, second, and third world. And those did initially, those definitions did come precisely from states that were not aligned. Like definition of third world, we now use third world. I mean, we don't anymore. It's not politically correct. But third world beca- uh, became like developing. But what it actually was, was aligned, right? Um, it was states that, that didn't pick a side. And so much of the Cold War were these two poles scrambling around the world contesting for influence precisely because they couldn't just they each had their not, they each had their close allies and they each had their sort of very close friends on whom they could 100% rely but everything else was around running around and trying to get these other countries to try to compete for influence in them and i think if you zoom out of what's about to happen even if some of the countries that they are competing for are significantly larger and more powerful than they were than they than they would have been in the 70s and 80s or even the the, the 60s the 50s it is still fundamentally the same the same game it is going to be the us and china turning around to everyone else and sort of competing to say, well, whose who's world do you want to live in?
1: Right. So I think, look, I don't disagree with that. I think there's a couple of things that, that need to be kind of understood, though. And one is that China is fairly weak, really, comparatively, particularly compared to the Soviet Union. But even compared today, uh, it doesn't have the military ability to project its power anywhere, really, like not even Taiwan, Um, at least yet, touch wood. Uh, so it's 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 not like the Soviet Union was you know really able to project its power a long way right to Florida's doorstep in in the sixties, obviously. Um, so one, China is a lot weaker than the Soviet Union was, but the second thing is that I don't think China. Obviously, everyone's competing for interests for influence everywhere. That's always been the case and always will be the case. But take India, take Brazil, take Turkey, take these countries that are you know in during the cold war were very much i agree with you non aligned like not not specifically in one camp or the other but they were not centers of gravity in their own right like these places were like either choose a side or stay neutral ish but it wasn't like they were exerting regional influence in during the cold war so brazil was you know well not not no influence but brazil compared to its size and its relevance now was nothing india the same going forward from now i i can't see a world in which Turkey the big three for me Turkey Brazil and India don't have their own regional center of gravity that does not depend on China or the U.S. at all so the idea that their trade their manufacturing technology these are the these are the levers of geopolitical power of the 21st century they will not depend on whether they're in good graces of the U.S. or China and they will exert their own regional pull on the countries around them and, and the alliances and, and, and yeah and the countries around them and the people who trade with them and their alliances.
0: Uh, okay, but to, to, to kind of push back on that and I don't want to take away anything from, from the importance of these countries, especially no, in not. their regions. But if we are talking about a world that has poles rather than just regional centers, you know like Germany is hugely influential in Europe, but nobody talks about a multipolar world with Germany as being a pole of that world anymore. And I think similarly it's kind of I use a really simplistic framework, which is that on the major global news channels, when a big event happens, whether it is a kind of giant earthquake or a new geopolitical thing, um, who are the producers going to include clips of, no matter where you are in the world? And I think no matter where you are in the world almost, they will include if if the US president said something and I think if the Chinese if the Chinese president said something that that will probably make the uh, make the first segment but I think outside of their immediate regions will the comments of uh, the Brazilian president will the, the comments of, of Modi necessarily lead the news as being inherently newsworthy I'm not sure Um, Unless they sort of say something outrageous that itself causes a new cycle. Um, So I think when you're talking about who the world turns to for leadership and whose reactions, you know, as diplomats, whose whose interventions are we putting in every cable we send home? Um, And I think it's U.S. and China at the top, EU there and then a rotating cast of additional characters, and again, that is not me being disparaging. It's just, I mean, it's it's how it is.
1: No, no. Let's take it as read that you're that this conversation we're not trying to disparage any country or anything like that. I mean, but I think you've just kind Except of
0: New Zealand.
1: <laughs> well, be that upon your head. I don't. I don't want the Kiwis coming <laughs> and hacking my accounts. Um, no, but you've. I think you kind of admitted it there. Like you said that the the EU was part of that as well, and I think that. Germany on its own certainly can't, you know, isn't going to be a regional pole of power, as it were, um, nor France, nor any of these European states on their own. But if the EU, you know, post the Ukrainian war, which has shown it to be far more solid than, you know, many, many suspected. And if they can maintain that solidarity and that and that kind of, you know, making sure that they don't kill themselves with internal squabbles, if they can maintain a united front, as it were. They become a serious pole of power in the 21st century that I don't think anyone could could really you know, disagree with. The, the question I think you're... I mean, and you mentioned it there. So there you've already got China, the EU, and the US. And the EU fits, you know, obviously closer to the US, but, you know, is, is not necessarily in the US's camp. I think if you spoke to someone in the EU, they would say we are certainly not, you know, if this is a Cold War, we're not lockstep with the US and we don't want to have to choose. Um, but we want to be our own center of power and i and i think this is the point that i think where we disagree is i don't i don't disagree that in a multipolar world that you can have you know first order powers and second order powers and countries that are stronger and weaker just that in a way that if between 1950 and 1991 other countries didn't really exert their own regional influence to the extent that they will in the 21st century like brazil has a chance a unique chance to basically be to dominate Latin America. Argentina is an absolute bin fire um, economically. Uh, you know, so's Peru, so's Chile, Venezuela we know a lot about. Like there's no, there are no other candidates in South America or in Latin America. Mexico arguably, but like, you know, again, they've got their massive problems as well. Brazil has a unique opportunity to be a huge regional power that even could project its power, you know, across the Pacific into Asia eventually, with its, with its kind of energy and technology abilities. So that's one. Obviously, the EU we've just talked about. Turkey, I think, you know, who knows what happens with Erdogan, but Turkey has got incredible power in North Africa and across the Middle East. It's the only genuinely advanced kind of industrialized economy in the region. Um, Russia's declining, which was its biggest check on its power, kind of if, if, if Turkey wasn't going to be a regional power, Russia was the reason. Well, Russia's clearly declining. Um, and then India, which is the biggest example of a country that has incredible demographics, is has enemies on both sides, but doesn't love the US, doesn't love free trade, doesn't love all of this kind of stuff, and will, I don't think, be subjugated to anybody, but will absolutely exert its power on Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, you know, the rest of the world through its manufacturing. So I, I, I struggle to understand how these countries will, because I think what a Cold War analogy requires you to believe is that these countries will just sort of settle down and almost export or at least give off some of their national interest, the pursuit of their national interests to either Beijing or Washington they'll say well on the on the balance of probabilities we're going to stick with beijing because most of the time we agree with them more but we're not going to go against them when when we think that we clash and i just can't see a world in which brazil india and the eu don't want to be regionally powerful
0: okay but to to let's take your own framing because when when the first thing you said about china when in in attacking the cold war comparison is They're not as powerful as the USSR was. They're unable to project force anywhere. Um, And so first, just about every state you just listed pretty much fails that test. The EU is unable to, I mean, with the possible exception of France that has limited projection capabilities because the French are good at what they do no one outside of a out, without the assistance of a US logistical framework none of those countries are able to maintain any kind of force projection expeditionary force without the US except France in a limited capacity um, india brazil even turkey turkey's probably the closest it's got the turkey's probably the closest to be able to really project it's got a
1: formidable power military, yeah. but
0: a formidable military could they sustain it Um, could they sustain it significantly beyond its borders? Uh, I don't think the logistics are necessarily there. Um, You know, across the border in Syria, maybe further abroad, no. So I think on those, they failed the tests. And I think on so many of these other issues, when it comes to the foundational clash, it's not like regionalism stopped during the Cold War. There were, like, India and Pakistan didn't spend the entirety of the of the last century being friends and having no issues just because the cold war was on. There will still be regional issues. It'll still be, there'll still be regional players and some of which may be quite dominant in their region, but it is very hard for me to imagine. Maybe I lack imagination, but for me, it's hard to imagine a 21st century that is not defined primarily by this major geostrategic competition between either the West and China, or the US and China, depending on how, and there is obviously, as you say, there's a question about which way the EU breaks there. Um, The EU has a lot of incentives to delay making a decision for as long as humanly possible, um, and to stay, if not quite neutral, then at least kind of open to both sides. Uh, The same is true of a lot of the other players who have very strong incentives not to pick a side as it were, but I think to the I think to the history books of the next century and how they will look at this moment, it is really hard for me to say that this won't be the defining story, and it won't be the lens through which policymakers increasingly have to view everything.
1: Yeah, so I think that last point is an interesting one, the way that the lens that policymakers use. So I I I kind of agree with you that the narrative will be US-China, and I think it is because the media don't tend to understand the broader context um, and lack imagination a little bit. But I, I mean, all of this is set against the backdrop of deglobalization, right? Like the, the reshoring of supply chains and manufacturing capabilities and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I agree with you that the US-China like trade war and decoupling is important now, and to the extent they ever decouple, in five or ten years, do you not see a world where the U.S. trades and has a, a huge amount of regional influence in Latin America and, and Central America, and does a lot of its you know manufacturing there? A lot of its supply chains are closer to home, and a lot of its connections, like its sort of physical supply chain, you know, real connections to Asia, are considerably less than they are now? And then the idea that India will prevent China from really ever filling the vacuum in southeast asia and, and and certainly india because it's doesn't like china and it's powerful enough to stop it and then in europe the eu will like protect its markets protect its certainly its borders it will try to probably have influence in north africa and south south southeast asia but it certainly won't be you know part of the american world per se um, and then Turkey again, same thing. So, like this idea that, like, I don't disagree with you that the U.S. China will be the most headline grabbing and, and and probably the most important, particularly if Taiwan kicks off, right? Then because you've got a hot war. But to me, I can I think almost the way I see it is that once deglobalization is a few years down the track, and I'm talking like 2030 here, there's going to be so, there's going to be much more. It's going to be much easier to understand silos within within which the world will operate. The idea that you kind of china will be left much more to its own devices by the us than it is now i think my view but it will be constrained by other powers that are far more powerful than any other country was during the cold war like you say india and pakistan didn't like each other during the cold war of course but india could do sweet fa to the soviet union or to the us if it didn't like what was happening India really has the ability to constrain China's choices now. Turkey really has the ability to constrain the EU's choices, the Middle East's choices, the Russian choices in its regional of regional of, you know, influence. And the EU has the same ability and the America America has the same ability. Brazil I think will have the same ability whether it does now or not is a different question, but like it's almost like this idea of not not who the most powerful countries are, but almost the most powerful like are there enough countries that can block the powerful countries from doing what they want as the, as the fundamental dynamic for the next you know, 30, 40, 50 years or however long? And I, I just I can't I struggle to see a world where India, EU, Turkey, Brazil don't seriously constrain the power of China and the US and other countries.
0: So here's here's where I am a little bit more skeptical of that vision than you are. I think at the moment, those countries have in some places been able to constrain the power of Beijing and the desires of the the US, uh, the EU to a larger extent. But that has happened in the context of what is a comparative kind of global peace in a lot of ways. The US and China, US-China, antipathy and kind of competition is just getting started. And the more that US policymakers are viewing China as a truly existential threat, the more they are viewing them as geostrategic enemy number one, the less patience they are going to have with things that with other players and other systems uh, and even international agreements that constrain their ability to effectively fight China. And China will do the same thing from their side. And we've already seen it, you know, when when the WTO recently ruled that the some of what the US had done on steel was illegal, the US response was like, nah, we don't care. This is our national security. We don't care. And I think what we have yet... What we haven't necessarily seen is a situation where a country like India attempts to stifle or to prevent a US or Chinese interest that they view as truly fundamental to their greater meta-conflict. And I am, while India and Brazil and Turkey have the ability to raise costs for US and China... I am just not yet convinced that they have the appetite for the consequences of raising those costs high enough to be a true constraint. This is where I am, th- this is where I'm a little bit un- uh, uncertain of the picture that you're painting.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, fair enough. I, I, I definitely I definitely think India, yeah, anyway, I, I, I take your point. I, I don't agree, but I think what, one of the things that we, that we come back to is like is, is so if is the Cold War a useful analogy for policymakers? Because all of this can be very esoteric mm-hmm. and very interesting. Then we go off and have a chardonnay. But what <laughs> what is the what is the like the, the, where does the rubber meet the road here? Like how does however you view it, whether you view the world becoming mm-hmm. much more multipolar, like I do, or or a bit more like you do, what does it change about how you? about you know things like again supply chains technology development um and energy is the big one obviously that's going to define the next 21st century more than almost anything else like the mixes of energies that are used by different countries based on the resources they can get what why is this useful if you're a policymaker or or just thinking about this generally
0: so so if you take my world view um so like the way that i have approached this issue if it If I'm looking at the Cold War, what I would say, if I'm a policymaker anywhere else, what I would do, my number one way that I would try to plan for the future, is work out, as you've just outlined there, a few of the key issues which are kind of going to be the fault lines on which a new Cold War is fought. And you've listed some of them are about energy, some of them are about rare earths, and it's about technology. And to to basically assume... That on those issues, you are going to need to make sure that your policies do not run contrary to the vital interests of those two players, or if they do, make sure that you are fully shielded by the other. That on those na- so I' go- on those issues, you don't have to do it everywhere, but there are going to be a couple of places where this stuff is fought. And you just, you are not going to be able to swan along as if this isn't happening. And your primary question is going to be, what is the US interest on this? What is the Chinese interest on this? And where do I fall? And where do I fall between that? That would be the lens. And to assume that those two players are supremely powerful and willing to, willing to cross most lines in order to secure their interests on those because they view them as existential. That would be my recommendation to policymakers going through a Cold War lens. I'd be interested to hear in what yours would be.
1: So I think, I think I mean, obviously, I think you, the analysis is, is bang on from you in terms of like how it, why this matters is like figuring out what the interests of China and the US are. I would just say very predictably, you don't, it's not just China and the US, it's all those other countries I, I, I mentioned. And depending on the geography of where you are, I think it, I personally think it would be negligent analysis if you were in Israel or if you were in uh North Africa or if you're in uh you know Central America to be to go like what does the US want? What does China want? Done. That's my job. I think you have to, you absolutely have to take very seriously if you're in if you're sitting in Venezuela, what does Brazil say? If you're sitting in North Africa, what's Turkey got to say? What's the EU got to say? Uh, to a lesser extent Russia, because I think we both agree that it's declining and, and will be relatively <laughs> will be relatively in trouble by like 2035 or whatever. Uh, and if you're in Southeast Asia or North Asia, or the Pacific is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah, those two countries that you have to consider most are US and China. But again, if you're in North Africa, I would argue that it's not the US and China that's at the top of your list. It's probably Turkey and the EU. And All of those countries need to be in the mix of what are the competing interests here. And when you have that matrix of interests that you need to consider, it's very hard for me to understand reliably which one will constantly be the one that you need to take the most seriously. And that to me is like that stable equilibrium of like... Well, depending on where I am, I'm going to have a different mix of considerations. Therefore, the whole world is kind of this matrix of different considerations, depending on where you are, which gives rise to the ability for everyone not to be able to kind of really do what they want all over the globe, just within their sphere of influence. But the analysis is the same. Sit down, think about the issue. Who cares about it? Who's the most important player in your region? What do they want? What are you going to do in response?
0: Yeah. I mean, if, if I were to kind of end us off on a more unites us and divides us thing, um, you know, I started this off by saying that it's it's simplistic historical revisionism to reduce the Cold War to, to just those two countries. You know, I think you, you use the example of North Africa there. Uh, Israel did not spend the Cold War exclusively looking at US and the USSR they were i mean their diplomats their intelligence services were obviously looking at their region because mm. that's what mattered and and so we certainly we certainly uh, agree there um i guess the the point the point of disagreement between us which i don't think we resolved uh but certainly i assume all of our viewers just agree with you now um is that i um my my instruction is that there are things that you can learn from the Cold War in the sense of there are going to be a range of issues on which fundamentally you will have to pick a side in the same way that you did in the Cold War. And there really will be only two opinions that truly matter. And I think, John, your point, which is very salient, is that you can't just stop there and you can't just assume that is true of every issue. There are these emerging power blocks that may be even more influential in your region or to the mosaic of the world, and that will be influential in ways that are completely divorced from where they happen to fall on the China-US spectrum.
1: Exactly. Is so, that,
0: that a fair summation? More, it is. Once yeah. again, more unites us than divides us? Exactly, which is a disappointing All right, well, way to end. <laughs> no, well, there's no
1: arm raising in the ring.
0: We can just, we can just fight each other again. Uh, okay, well then let's maybe, let's wrap up the podcast there. Um, thank you so much for coming in and, and listening to to John and I fight to the death over this nerdy wonky topic. Uh, as always, uh, please do, if you enjoyed it, please do let people know about the podcast. It really helps helps when you like, subscribe and leave your comments violently disagree with us. It certainly makes uh, International Intrigue happy when you sign up to the International Intrigue newsletter. The sign-up link for that will be below and it'll be on our end screen. So please do give that a, uh, a click. And so until next time, I'm Dimitri and with me is John. And this has been Intrigue Explained. Thanks so much. Thanks.